Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, we're back from a short holiday and we're also back with guest Jake Taylor. You may know Jake as one of the hosts of the podcast Value After Hours or as the CEO of Farnham Street. In this episode, he gives Juan an update on Journalytic, the decision-making software he teased in his last appearance on TVP, and discusses how studying the returns from the S&P 500 over the past decade has given him a new framework to think about the future. It wouldn't be a TVP conversation without some Bayesian probabilities chat. And finally, Jake touches on investing in climate change from the perspective of a former electrical engineer and his observations from the West Coast. Now, before we start with the episode, we do have some definitions that we need to cover off. EV or enterprise value is a measure of the company's total value, and it's a popular metric used to value a company for a potential takeover. EBIT, or earnings before interest and taxes, is an indicator of a company's profitability. And finally, CAGR is the compound annual growth rate, and it is the rate of return that would be required for investment to grow from its beginning balance to its ending balance, assuming the profits were reinvested at the end of each period of the investment's lifespan. Now that we've got those covered off, enjoy. Jake Taylor, welcome back to the Value Perspective podcast. Is a pleasure to have you back. How are you? Juan, it's so good to be back. And uh, thanks for having me on. Where do we find you today? Uh, I'm back home in in California uh, after a little bit of traveling. So uh, trying to dig out from under the the email pile that builds up while you're on the road and uh, get back to doing some real work again. But uh, yeah, it's good to be home. That's fantastic. We've had you before on the pod. We we did our first recording in November of 2020, and our episode came went live in January of 2021. For those that haven't listened to that, and I encourage them to to do listen to that, uh, can you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, so I'm the CEO of Farnham Street Investments, which is uh, an RIA uh, in the U.S. Uh, I'm a co-host of a podcast called Value After Hours with my my two buddies, uh, Toby Carlisle and Bill Brewster, uh, where on Tuesdays we get together and uh, for an hour just basically chop it up uh, about markets and uh, different things that are happening in the investment world. Uh, and, and hopefully by the end of the episode, maybe we're all a little bit smarter or at least marginally entertained, maybe not smarter. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I'm also the founder of a of a little side project that I've been working on that's called Journalytic. That's uh, a software that is hopefully going to help everyone make better investment decisions. The thing that you have left out from that very kind summary, the fact that you are also the author of a novel, 
which you explained last time around. And oh, yeah. had, you were, we were also the host of another podcast, which I believe that you have somehow stopped doing. Yeah, that's true. I did write a book uh, in 2019 uh, that called The Rebel Allocator. And um, I basically was trying to help young people uh, understand business a little bit better and investing. And, and I did that through telling a story. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I had another podcast that I was doing called Five Good Questions uh, that has been on a little bit of a hiatus because I've been so busy with these other projects. So it's it's been on the shelf. Uh, and We'll see. It's we'll see when it comes back. I'm not making any promises at the moment, but uh, but I, it is a labor of love that I, I do enjoy doing. So eventually, I think it'll come back. We are huge fans of Value After Hours. I myself, I I literally listen to it every single week. I I find it very useful, very educational, very entertaining. Um, I, I I already said that on our first episode. It's really 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 good. Thanks, Juan. I appreciate that. Um, so you, you've mentioned journalistics, and that's something that you also mentioned on the podcast uh, before. But back then, and I, I actually think that you frame it in a way that you were not thinking about talking about the software development side, but something came through in one of the questions that we asked, and it was at a beta test phase. So what is journalistics and what has happened with it over the course of the last two years? Yeah, thank you. The whole impetus of the project was really trying to scratch my own itch of improving my own decision making. So, you know, recording the data that I wanted to know about myself and my process that were sort of a pain to do and keep track of and just lowering the friction to be able to make sure that I'm keeping track of the things that then allow me to close feedback loops of understanding that let me learn faster about, you know, where are my strengths, where are my weaknesses. So after I was working on it for a while, it was like, wow, this probably could help other people as well. I wonder if there's maybe even a commercial project or you know, product that might come of this. And um, I have a couple of amazing co-founders. One guy, one of my really good friends, one of the best people I know, he worked in private equity for a number of years in a family office and really strong operations background. And then this, my other co-founder is a, a programmer who is like just, he's been in the programming and development uh, world forever and uh, has tons of background in you know working at all the big tech companies and uh, is just an absolute rock star. So it's like almost having a, a genie that would, you know, whatever you want to build, he can say, oh yeah, we can do that. So we've have some employees now who are also working on it to speed things up. And, uh, you know, we're, we're actually in the middle of a seed round to even speed things up faster. So doing a little bit of early uh, venture capital. So yeah, it's really exciting. It's, it's super fun. I think we're, what we're building is really going to help a lot of people, which is what is most important to me. So yeah, I think it's a really prop. It's probably the highest upside project that I've ever worked on actually. That's really interesting. I have to say that I had the, the privilege of being invited to test it uh, a few months ago. And I was, and I actually put one of your colleagues in contact with my colleague, um, Vera German. And I think that um, it's, it's, it's full of great tools to improve your own decision-making. And you will correct me if I'm wrong, but it gives you the optionality to create your own journal so that you don't, you, act, you can actually record in real time the way that you're thinking about different variables, about the business, either narrative or numbers itself. 
it also gives you the possibility of assigning different uh, probabilities to the expected outcomes. And one of the most powerful tools and one, one that I really enjoyed a lot is the fact that it gives you all of these options uh, to run checklists, checklists depending on what is it that you're looking for, what's important to you. So you, if you are more aligned to the way that monger tends to think and you want to run like a checklist, the monger checklist, or uh, if you are very much into accounting, it will give you the checklist on the different red flags that you need to, to check. That's that's very that's very useful. Yeah, the uh, the checklist component is, I think, especially for educational purposes. If you're a little bit of a newer investor, there's tons of stuff in there to learn that we've included. You know, if you've got to understand why you know you asked yourself these questions in a checklist, you would have a pretty thorough understanding of the investment process. Yeah, like you said, we have probabilistic predictions that you can make real easily. We have contracts with yourself that you can do where you know it's. <laughs> there's this kind of joke in the investment world that, you know, when it comes time to buy the company at the price that you want it at, you're not going to want to do it, right? Uh, just because of all of the scary macro headlines that will be driving it down to that attractive price. So one countermeasure to that behavioral bias is to create a contract with yourself while you're calm, while you're thinking clearly, without all of the headlines that, that could be scary, and you set a contract that says, okay, if it gets to this price or this metric or this corporate action, whatever it is that you want to do, here is the action that I will take. So, you know, you're, you're pre-programming yourself for that man overboard moment so that you are in the driver's seat and controlling your emotions. And I think what the biggest part of this whole game is really controlling your own emotions. Uh, it's really you against yourself. So this is a way to help that. And of course, then we have a bunch of the standard things that you would see in a typical kind of journaling, note taping app in, you know, with being able to tag things and the ability to, but what really sets us apart is that because we know that this is specifically for the investment use case, we have these specific actions that you can take, like recording your decisions, contracts, a uh, bunch of other things that, that then provide structured data for us to serve up reports to you about your whole process and close those feedback loops. So the name of it is Journalytic because it's journaling on the front end and then analytics on the back end. So that's, that's, the, that's kind of the vision. Uh, but, but where it's going, actually, I think is what I'm most excited about is... so. Google has this natural language processing API where you can feed it any piece of, of text and it will then assign a sentiment score, positive or negative, as well as a magnitude. And, you know, it, it's based on the word choice and the word order. And so imagine one that you are just journaling about a particular investment idea. And, you, you know, you, as time has gone on, you're, you know, you're putting your thoughts in there and kind of making this your second brain. Well, this our program will then automatically look at how your sentiment has been changing and then overlay that maybe even to the price so that you can see like, gosh, like look how much price is driving how I feel about this, how I'm interpreting all the data, uh, how I'm viewing this company. And I think what a lot of people are going to find is that the price is dramatically driving their sentiment and they need to zoom out from that and stay focused on the fundamentals and the numbers and not let Mr. Market sway them so much. But it's hard to do that in real time without seeing that, gosh, look how my sentiment is changing based on the feedback that I'm getting from the program. So um, at the end of the day, it's all about trying to just serve you up things about yourself so that you know yourself better so that you can make better decisions. Journalytics has been built on your own experience. 
mm-hmm. before starting the project. And then it has evolved over the course of the last two or three years. And, and that evolution has come on the back of you living throughout, throughout that process on, on the decisions, the investment decisions that you've been making over the last three years. So how has your, the tool improved your own individual mental process, not only when it comes to investing, but maybe life in general? And, and this is probably a little bit subjective, but to you, which ingrained feature have you found the most useful? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically lives on my second monitor uh, at all times, and I'm just dumping things in there all day long. Like it's the first tab that I open and the last one that I close. And uh, what, I, what I've found is that there's a few things that have been super valuable for me. Like number one has been to really do a good job of tagging different ideas. And then what it allows me to do then is kind of go on these little rabbit holes into my own thought processes and to see how things connect. So if you tag, let's say like I'm looking at a particular idea and I can start to see like, hey, I wonder if this sort of rhymes with this other pattern that I've seen. Well, that starts to emerge when you start tagging things with with different things. Like let's say anti-fragile, for instance, as a, as a mental model. You can choose any mental model that you, you want to, but uh, let's use anti-fragile. I can look at a company and see like, wow, I think this is maybe starting to look like this other company that I've seen that's anti-fragile. And all these things just start popping out and emerging because you're, you're tagging the world and, and allowing you to sort it out kind of into a lattice work. Um, the other thing that's been really helpful has been actually feedback on my, the, when I say no to something. So one of the key elements of recording decisions has been to, to put in like a rejection or a, or a no buy as we call it. And, and then code why I rejected that and then go back and look and see, uh, it, it'll automatically calculate what the opportunity cost was of rejecting on that day because we know what the price is and we know what the price has become since then. So we can start to see what the opportunity cost is of all of this, the things that we said no to. Um, and those sins of omission, uh, as Buffett has said, like those are has been his biggest sins. It's not sins of commission. So uh, getting a sense of what the sins of omission are for me, what has been the cost of my filtering process? Uh, it's just it just lays out all the stuff that that we know all exists out there. Like the data are there, but we just are not capturing them. Like why did I say no to that company? Unless you write it down and code it, you don't. The bigger picture of all of the times that I coded for that reason and what has it gone on to do. We just don't know what the consequences are. So just laying bare the consequences, um, you know, it's, it's actually kind of comparable to, I don't know if you've ever done food tracking before where you, you know, you, you plug in your macros for food and you keep track of like, okay, I ate this much protein, this many carbohydrates, this much fat every single day. You, you really start to get a sense of, oh my God, like I didn't realize that they're like, that was what I was eating every day. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, that was the total calories. And that, you know, those were the macronutrients until you start measuring these things. You just don't, you just don't have a cognition as to like what they are. So of course you're not going to learn and make the smarter choice because you just don't, you don't, you're not giving yourself the data and the feedback. So at the end of the day, the whole, the whole project is to provide that kind of clarity about yourself and your process so that you can you can have that awareness and then make the corrective action and change the habit that then leads to the progress that you're looking for. For anyone that is interested in journalistic, what they, what should they do? (laughs) 
Well, they can, uh, they can go to journalytic.com and, and get on our wait list. Uh, we're still in beta phase. Um, and, and, you know, we're not, it's not completely open yet, but, uh, but we're getting there. And we, what we really want to do is make sure that we have something really kick-ass built before we go fully, you know, public for everybody. Uh, but, but yeah, please, please reach out and, uh, and get on there if you're interested in, in this. That's really, really interesting. Um, in your latest, well, I was going to say your latest quarterly, but I'm now I'm aware that you released your latest, latest quarterly today. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> um, and the one that you released in uh, April, although I have to say that the one that you just released today, and we're recording this on the 27th of July, 2022, you are building up on, on what you were saying in, in April. And it's something that you also cover in one of your episodes in Valley of Hours, which is this exercise to try to understand and explain what has been behind the 17% annual returns generated by the S&P over the course of the last decade. And it's a really interesting exercise where you are decomposing the different variables that lead led into that specific performance. And so can you please walk us through that methodology, which is really powerful, and explain why can it be so useful to use, not only when thinking about markets, but even individual companies? Yeah, this, this is an exercise that um, I'm, I'm borrowing a lot of the numbers from, from Chris Bloomstrand of Semper Augustus, who uh, he, he writes this up in his annual letter to just show, okay, well, what, where did the composition of returns come from? And so uh, all of this comes from very simple accounting identities. So it's not, you know, we're not like making any real big leaps, but I find it very helpful to just see, okay, if, where do returns even come from? Like, what is the answer here? And what, what, what the answer is, is that it, it, it's really five factors. So number one is the change in sales. So basically top line. And we could start at the S&P 500, let's just say, uh, as, as, a, as imagining those 500 corporations all rolled up into being one corporation. So what's the total change in sales at the top line? What's the change in margin? What's the change in the share count? So you know the number of claim tickets chasing the ownership of this, this, this business. Uh, the change in the multiple, which is really a factor of sentiment. And then the dividend yield. So you know what was paid out to, to the owners. And, and what we find is that when we look at all of those components and we sum them up, we end up with what is the total return to an investor in the S&P 500. So just to give you a sense of what those numbers look like over the last 10 years, and let's call it from uh, 1231-2011 to 1231-2021, that, that decade coming into this year, uh, sales grew 3.1%, which sort of jives with our notion of like GDP growing at 3%. Margin contributed 4%. So we had an expansion in margins over that decade. Share count reduced to give of seven-tenths of a percent attribution to returns. So there were buybacks that happened over the last 10 years. The multiple expanded, providing 6.4%. That's a huge number. Like that's that's almost the entirety of the normal amount of return that you would get from the ownership uh, of a business in the six percentage range, right? Uh, and then dividend yield was two point four percent, which is about where it lives most of the time. So when we add all those things together, we end up with a sixteen point six annualized return over a ten year period, which is absolutely phenomenal. The question then is, okay, what does the next ten years look like? Right. We know what it was for the last 10 years. Can we do it again? 
And that's that was the question that I was trying to answer in the April letter. Um, and then in this July letter was, OK, if we don't like the answer to that, which is, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spoiling the punchline a little bit as to the April letter. But if we don't like the answer, what else might we be looking for of ways to win if the if it's not going to be from, let's say, top line growth or multiple expansion? And I think that you went on to do some. I don't want to use the word predictions, but you are you're you're trying to figure out where that specific market will well the, the index will end up going forward ten years in time, and what's the um, probability that some of the historical performance will continue into the future? And walk us through your mental process into arriving to those numbers. Well, I mean, we can everyone could come up with their own numbers here. I mean, this is just what I was felt like comfortable possibly underwriting for the next 10 years. So what I what I came up with was, let's call it 3% again for uh, the sales growth. And by the way, here's an interesting fact. 2000 to 2010, that decade, which was a lost decade for the S&P 500, if you recall, like you returns went nowhere over that 10 year period. Top line was actually stronger than the 2011 to 2021 number. So we, actually, top line growth was stronger during that period than than this boom period. So, for everyone who thinks that you know it's just all about revenue, uh, I would say that that's probably you know a little bit short sighted. Anyway, <laughs> I'm I'll, I will let's let's pretend then that sales will expect it to continue growing at three percent, kind of stays with GDP. All right. Uh, now margin. This is a tough one because if you believe Jeremy Grantham, who said that margins are one of the most mean reverting data sets in finance or Warren Buffett, who said that, you know, you're a fool if you believe that margins, can, if, if profit margins for corporate America can, can be much more than 6%, uh, you know, don't expect that. Currently we're at 13% and we've been above 6% for a long time. So either Buffett is, has lost it, or we can, ex we should probably maybe expect some reversion to the mean in that number. Now, whether that comes from, inflation of cost and energy inputs or uh, who knows why, or, you know, reshoring, uh, you know, deglobalization. There's lots of possible ways where you, where we can just not expect corporate America to be as profitable as they have been. I think I'm fading that by 3% contribution. And that, that even that doesn't even bring us all the way back to a 6%. I'm just saying, okay, over the next 10 years, it's just not going to be I don't think we're going above 13%. That's for sure. Okay. But I'm open to arguments against, uh, against the 3%. I find it very interesting that, so top line growth, growth in general, for me and many other value investors, it's more difficult to forecast just because it's speculative in nature and it tends to be, I mean, it can, it can go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but then the margin, you have so many data points you can anchor that margin too. So you, you're saying, well, you can mean revert the margin. You have history or uh, on your side. So you can look at what the market has done or individual companies. You could look at peers for individual companies, where, this, where the sector has been. And then you can have a sense of what the base rate is. But you are saying that that one is a little bit more difficult or has been more difficult in the past than the sales top line growth. 
Yeah, I think margin has resisted uh, reversion of the mean probably a lot longer and stronger than most people would have expected, certainly more than I would have expected. You've mentioned in the past, you have a theory on why that might have been. Uh, well, I think it's, I mean, okay, so let's look at the constituent components of the S&P 500, and a big chunk of them are made up of the large tech companies, which are, most of them are extremely profitable. So, you know, if you're, if they're running, you know, 30 plus percent margins in some cases, uh, when things are going really well, I mean, that's gonna, that's a big weighting on the profit margin for the S&P 500 to keep it buoyed up. So, uh, it's, you know, it's not surprising. I think the question is, do those mean revert? And, you know, does that come from competition or regulation or who knows what, um, or disruption? I mean, this is tech after all. That was the whole point of uh, technology was to disrupt incumbents, right? Um, so, and, you know, 10 years is a long time and a lot can happen in that time period. So, uh, you know, thus far they've been giants and have not been, dethroned. But, you know, I mean, this, the same could have been said, the biggest constituents of the, the S&P 500 turnover, you know, roughly every decade. So that's the nature of markets is that it's incredibly hard to stay on top. Uh, the world's gunning for you whenever you're on top. So, uh, but we'll see. I mean, they've also, there's this counter argument about, you know, returns to scale and network effects. And I think all those things are very real. Um, it's just, you know, what is the duration of the competitively advantage period that these companies are going to have? And that's going to dictate, you know, whether, uh, whether margins probably stay as, as elevated as they have been. And sorry, and I then interrupted where you were going. So you have the, you were thinking about the top line growth of 3%, then margins coming down. And then how were you thinking about the other variables? Sure. So then like share count, which was a contributor, I would probably put it flat uh, for the next 10 years. I mean, we, we added a lot of leverage in the last 10 years to do those buybacks that lowered the share count. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point companies actually had to issue equity for survival. We saw that in 2008. Um, so let's just put that as a wash at zero. Um, Let's put yield at the typical 2% that it's always lived at around there for dividends. Uh, and then PE multiple, which, okay, that's, if we look at any valuation metrics, uh, you know, there's no good timing valuation metric when I, you know, think about things like market cap to GDP or CAPE or uh, Tobin's Q. They all stink for timing. They don't tell you anything, but they do all sort of rhyme and they all tell you the same thing that markets are pretty expensive, uh, even with the corrections that we've seen so far. So. I, I personally am fading that multiple and even that doesn't get us all the way back to, you know, a long run kind of average, but let's say it's a 4% uh, reduction. I mean, we saw six and a half percent for 10 years going up. Why might, is it possible we might see 4% going the other direction for the next 10 years just to get back to normal? You add all that stuff up and you end up with a minus 2% annualized, which is almost minus 20% total over a 10 year period, which is, you know, probably might be shocking for a lot of people to think 10 years from now, the S&P is 20% lower than it was at the start of the year in 2022. But then over the course of the last seven months, what we've seen is we're actually down even more than that. Yeah. So we gave it, we, yeah. Who knew that like three months from writing all this, that uh, we would get all of that number. And now I guess the question is, are we done or are we 
is there more pain before we can get to find the next bull market? I think that's a great question and one that is uh, I don't have a lot of good answers for, to tell you the truth. So, so one of the useful things about uh, this exercise is what it makes in terms of your decision-making process, which is, is trying to figure out what numbers lay behind some of these assumptions so that you, you are able to make an informed decision going forward and you're thinking about all of this, the different components. Right. Definitely. So I'm, I'm one uh, that I, I just wrote up was a case study of a company that was able to do well even without a large top line growth and without a bunch of multiple expansion. And both of those, you know, the, the big top line and the big multiple change are sort of hallmarks of a bull market. So if we are not going to have that for the next 10 years, what are some other ways that you can win? And in my case study, this particular company grew at a 6% annualized growth rate for from 2005 to 2021. So, and then profit margins hovered around 17 to 20%. So it was a pretty, it was a reasonably quality business, but nothing spectacular. The big thing was that share count went from 80 million shares down to 23 million shares. So that was like a seven and a half percent Kager reduction in the share count. So just absolute munger cannibalism. Uh, and in fact, they spent $22 billion, which was about 85% of their cash flow from operations to pointed the, like basically pointed the capital allocation fire hose at buying back shares. Now, buying back shares is not an unalloyed good. It has to be done at the right price. Otherwise, basically value is walking out the door. So they were blessed with a, a relatively low EV to EBIT multiple for most of that time period. And so they, on average, they were retiring shares at about 11 to 12x uh, EV to EBIT. So pretty cheap. And so naturally, you know, if you didn't sell back to the company, if you held on for that entire period, you ended up with a 20% CAGR over that time period, which ended up being like a 2,100% return. So, I mean, you absolutely crushed it for, you know, almost 20 years. Um, now, of course, it's a lot easier said than done, right? Because the first four years of that time period, the stock went nowhere. It was like 8% cumulative return for that time period. You look like a bozo. Uh, there were multiple 30% drawdowns over that time period and lots of just dead doldrums where nothing was happening. Yet, behind the scenes, the company was growing a little bit. The margins stayed steady. They were retiring share count like a beast. In the end, lots of accretion was happening under the surface. You just had to be patient and ride it out. And so my takeaway from that is that basically um, this is, if you're not going to get top line, huge top line growth, you're not going to get multiple expansion for the next 10 years. How can you win in a down market? And the answer is finding a steady, boring, reasonably profitable business that has good cap allocation and they're retiring shares when it's cheap. And then that way you wake up every morning hoping to see the prices down because you know that that means that they're buying back at a lower lower valuation, uh, which means it's even better for you as a remaining shareholder. And that's one way that you might, that's one pattern that you might be looking for over the next decade as a way to win if markets aren't going to be giving you this big tailwind. I want to build on something that you have also written on the past. And I think that you've mentioned, you did this, you did a, I don't know if you did a similar exercise, but I, uh, you will correct me if I'm wrong. At some point in 2014, 2015, you came to the conclusion that value was not that attractive based on different variables, but value testing itself as a factor. And you were right about it. But you also that at that point in time, 
some of the context and the landscape of what you were looking at became a blind spot that stopped you from doing some investments that could have worked very well. And you've mentioned Google as an example of that. Mm -hmm. The exercise that you've just described about, which is pretty much about avoiding extrapolation. Don't take that very good number that, that has been achieved over the last 10 years and just think that it's guaranteed for the, for the next 10 years and think about what could be the different drivers behind it. And just for compliance reasons, that's just one possible scenario that could play out and we live in a problem world and a lot of things could happen. So my next question is, how do you, based on that, how do you avoid, what's the best way to avoid blind spots and i guess journalytics might be one of the key components of that yeah that i mean that's definitely uh is the intention of of the software is to help reveal those but uh i mean there were a couple things to unpack there like the first one about the 2015 observation that i had which was that the quality of the of the value opportunity set at that time period was especially weak and what that what that had to do with is that you know we we often look at the, the you know what how expensive is the general market, right? And but what what I think is lost in that is that there's a bell curve around that average that you have to take into account, and that bell curve can have tighter or wider distribution. So when the bell curve is especially tight, which means that, and this is talking about valuation. So let's say that the market average is 15, but the the cheapest 10%, that tail of the bell curve is you know, at 14 and the most expensive is at 16. So we have a very, very tight spread around that average. Well, that's one opportunity set, but we could even see a, let's say that the market average was 25. So a much more expensive market, but the cheapest 10% was down at five per, like let's say five times earnings. And the most expensive was at 50. Okay, now we have a very wide spread. I think the important thing to look at my insight was that it's not just the market average, it's what do the tails look like. So looking at the 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 distribution a little bit more with a little bit more granularity and looking at the dispersion of valuations between so between the most expensive and the cheapest. And what what I found was that in 1999 you had an you had a very expensive market, but you also had an incredible dispersion. And what that came from was the narrative at that time that the new economy stocks were going to take over the world. So they were very expensive and they were dragging the averages up. And then you had a bunch of brick and mortar, boring old economy stuff that was just being thrown in the garbage. And there was tons of value to be had there. And so naturally, there's an entire vintage of value investors who are, are gurus that had 99 start dates. And I think a lot of that had to do with the tailwind of the opportunity set that they had at that time was just so strong. So even in, in an expensive, you know, what, what you might think as a bad market because it was going to correct, you still had a ton of value that you could buy at that time. And what we saw was that those guys had positive returns when the, everyone else had negative returns. And that's how you get to look like a genius, right? Now, fast forward to 2008, we had a much tighter dispersion of valuations coming into 2008. And so you didn't see that same kind of value outperformance from the guys that were value investors at that over the next few years because their opportunity set wasn't that good. Now, when, when I wrote in 2015, 
it was even tighter. It was an expensive market with a very tight distribution around it. And so what I said was, is that that value opportunity set wasn't projecting to have very good returns from there. And that ended up coming true. Now, what I wasn't smart enough to realize was that, well, if the dispersions are tight, that means that probably some of the higher quality, maybe higher growth companies are mispriced to the other side and that we should, and maybe that there's actually a lot of cheap optionality embedded in those that I could have bought. And one of them happened to be something like Google where it, you know, it was mispriced and I wasn't smart enough to take the leap from, oh, value is not good right now. Therefore look somewhere else. I just was like, I threw up my hands and said, oh, I guess hold cash. Cause there's not a lot of st- cheap stuff to buy. Uh, I wish I was smarter back then. Uh, so, but you're smarter right now. So, how does that distribution look like right now? So, it, the last that I saw, it was um, it was more it was a, a an expensive market with a, a a reasonably wide distribution between most expensive and cheapest. But I don't think that the cheapness of today's value set is as cheap as the cheapest was in 99. So I would say if I had to guess, and you know, these are very rough, you know, like we're, we're painting with a, a crayon here. Um, but I, I would say that it's, it's uh, probably outperformance from value, but not amazing absolute returns. Okay. That's interesting. And so going back to the original question, how do you avoid the blind spots then? So let's, let's tackle, let's jump back into the Google uh, um, example. What I missed for the next, you know, five or six years from 2015 was that I was operating, trying to be a good, you know, kind of Bayesian forecaster about, you know, what, what can I expect for Google's top line? What might I expect for profit margins? What might I expect for share count? All of that same exercise that we talked about earlier. And I was putting a lower growth rate on top line because I, when you look at the base rates of, of big companies, it's really hard to keep growing at such an amazing clip. Like it, when you get that big, it's, it's hard to keep putting up 20% annualized growth rates on your top line because you just start to saturate your market. Like there's, you know, elephants can only get so big, like trees can't grow to the sky. Well, what I missed was that the, base rates for some of these tech companies defy all of the other base rates that you would have sort of looked at historically. And that comes back to then to our conversation about, you know, returns to scale and network effects and some of these other, um, you know, technology enabled profits that are, that just historically haven't been available. And so, you know, I was using the wrong set of base rates uh, to, to inform my decision-making, which was a blind spot. Um, and so my mistake came because I was, uh, trying to do what I thought was right, but, you know, I was using the wrong data as my, as my, for my analysis. And therefore I ended up being wrong. And it was a sin of omission that I, I would pick up later. Uh, and I probably would have picked it up sooner had I been a better journaler at that time and been documenting why I was passing. And it, it's, it's possible that I would have discovered the error faster and then maybe been able to correct it and not keep making it for five more years and like, you know, 25% compounded a year uh, kind of mistake in opportunity <laughs> cost. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. You, you're famous for your veggie segment at Value After Hours. 
And during our first session, you explain what these veggies were, why were they so useful, and where did you source them? Uh, this might be a bit of an unfair question, but from all of the different sciences that you have studied, which one do you believe is the most powerful to improve your process, understand markets, and human behavior? And on top of that, which one is your favorite, and which one do you apply the most? Yeah, I mean, I'm not... I'm going to punt a little bit in saying that uh, I'm going to pick like one genre and not maybe one segment that I did. And it, it has to do with, with complexity uh, and, and chaos and, you know, complex adaptive systems. And I think why that is so key to understanding the world is that um, the nonlinearity of them. So like the, the input can be very small and you end up with an output that is much outsized. And you can run the same simulation a million times and end up with huge discrepancies in outcomes, uh, as opposed to a linear system where same input, same output, same input, same output. Uh, so you end up with much tighter bands, all of which is to say it, it tells you to just like stay humble about forecasts that you're making and realize that the world can be much more random, much more chaotic much more complex than what you might give it credit for. And certainly than what you will see uh, on Twitter or, uh, you know, CNBC, like the world is much less deterministic, I think, than what you would, tr you would try to want it to be. So, which means like, you know, bring your over your confidence levels down a lot, or, you know, don't be overconfident. Um, there's this idea in, in complexity theory called the Lupinov window. And what it is, is that, for every uh, input that you have into a complex system, the more the, the tighter that you can measure those inputs, like the, the, the specificity with which you can measure them, the little bit longer that you have for the, with the predictability and what's going to be the output. So I would say that you know understanding as much about a business as you can is, is giving you a better granularity, a better specificity onto the inputs of the of the model and then allows you to have a little bit of a more window. So basically like know what you own is what I'm, I'm trying to say. Uh, but you have to recognize that the window is not that big and you probably, it's probably impossible to be making predictions and putting terminal values out 20 years from now on businesses. I, I mean, that's just me, but like when I see research that's, you know, 15 years from now and that's saying, you know, this is going to, the, the, the TAM is going to be this big and they're going to have this percentage of it and they're going to have this profit structure. I, I feel like that's, you're fooling yourself a little bit there. And so the, having an, a deep appreciation for complex systems just keeps your ego in check and keeps you from probably making some of those, those errors that I think in the last six months, especially have been revealed as to, boy, that was a little bit of wishful thinking and maybe the world is not that predictable. And um, some of those really, story narrative based stocks have been the ones that have been hammered the most and, and may have turned into maybe some of the biggest uh, pain points for people. So um, it, it just keeps you humble and keeps you into things that hopefully you, you know, you know something about it and you have a little bit of predictive power, but not assigning so much that you think that, you know, you know how the world's going to look in 10 years. So that, that's, I think, why it took so long for it to become mainstream. And what, what ended up happening was that, you know, in, in the like call it the 1980s and especially into the 90s, 
uh, you had the Santa Fe Institute, which was really pushing this. And the reason that they were able to make progress was because they set out to be multidisciplinary from the get-go. And so they pulled in uh, you know, physics, which has, has complexity in it. They pulled in biology, which has complex adaptive systems. They pulled in markets, which are, are represented by complex adaptive systems. Uh, they pulled in computer science, which has that same element. They pulled in all of these you know, different disciplines and recognize that, oh, this is like, this explains the phenomena much more than any one by itself did. And so they were able to make tremendous progress in their understanding. So that's also the part that probably appeals to me the most is that it covers such a wide range that that makes it a lot more fun to, for me to study and learn about and try to draw analogies from for us for as investors. That's that's really good. I heard you talk about the uh, Scout Mindset by Julia Gallef and went straight out and re read it right away. And thinking about it, this has been a constant topic of the show. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can walk us through your thoughts on the applicability of Bayesian thinking. You, you mentioned it just before now when it comes to investing and how challenging it actually is to put into practice. Yeah, I really liked Julia's book a lot. Um, I, so I, I did a segment on it and I think, you know, what it's, <laughs> I think what we, what's really hard about the investment process is that we're, we're seeking to find that outside view, right? Which is a way of getting out of our own little like narrative tunnel and really trying to see the, the truth of whatever the situation is, how, whatever the, is the truth for that business or that marketplace, whatever it is. And what's hard is that, you know, we all have blind spots and they're, you know, by definition, they're hard to fix because otherwise, you know, they wouldn't be a blind spot. So if you have, by seeking the outside view, there's multiple ways of doing that. One is to talk to other people who maybe understand parts of it better than you do. Um, another is to like read widely so that you can find different tools, different, you know, if you only have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, right? But if you have different tools, you can start to uncover blind spots and, and try to see things in, in with a different prism. And then you have base rates, which is basically like of all the times that this, this type of situation has occurred, what has been the outcome and, and what number of times has that been the outcome? And the trick is to, to try to refine the base rate that you're using to get closer and closer to what the actual truth looks like. And that's what Bayesian probabilities are all about is starting with a, a top level base rate and then working your way down with data to truly understand like, okay, as I get closer and closer, to what the actual phenomena is, what can I start to expect? And, and that's really all that, like how your brain works as well. Like it's, it starts out with very basic fundamental sort of Bayesian ideas of, oh, if I drop this ball, 100% of the time, it's going to fall to the ground. And, and you start building up from there. Um, and, and eventually, you know, by the time you have a fully formed brain, hopefully there's a lot more nuance of the world that you're understanding that you can start to, that those probabilities start being reflected. So, um, it, that's how, you know, the brain being a Bayesian updating machine, this is why surprise is so important is because surprise is the feedback telling you, hey, one of your base rates is wrong. What you thought was going to happen didn't happen. Like red alert, like throw up a flag, like we need to update our models. So, you know, that's, that's why failure is so important. And that's, you know, a big part of what with the software that I'm building is to uncover those surprises and really 
kind of rubbed your nose in your mistakes a little bit by going back and looking at what your thinking was at that time so that you, you get a better understanding of why you were surprised and then therefore you update your models better. And that's why that's the whole idea of closing the feedback loop to learn faster is that you, you recognize your mistakes faster and then you take, take measures to fix them. From your own experience, do you have any tips that could help investors become better at adopting probabilities within their mental and investment process? This is not something that we ask everyone. It's just because probabilities are so difficult to grasp. I think just writing them down more regularly is, is the key. I mean, I think, so a lot of times probabilities come from intuition. You're, you, know, you have all these mental models and there's a lot of stuff happening at the subconscious level that you don't even really have access to with your cognitive you know, executive function. So just writing them down and then going back to see how did they turn out will start to close that feedback loop. And I don't think like intuition doesn't work unless feedback is provided to start building that intuition up. So if, if you're just making intuitive guesses in a vacuum, you, I don't think you ever get better at it. So I, th I think you just have to start writing it down and keeping track a little bit better. And, and then you can start to trust your intuition a little bit more. That's really powerful. I am going to be um, very cheeky with my next question. And the reason for that is that I can't pass on this opportunity to ask you about the debate that has been permeating, permeating markets over the course of the last two years around the topic of ESG. And the reason I'm, I'm going to bring this up is because you are an electrical engineer, engineer by formation, correct me if that's wrong. Yeah, my, uh, before I became a professional investor, I, I ran the power grid for the state of California. Yes, okay, that's perfect. That's perfect for the... <laughs> Who started your career, as you just mentioned, working in the utility space, so working with the grid? Who understands the math and the physics behind what uh, power generation is and what it takes. And on top of that, who lives in California, which is back and center of many of the things that are happening. So with that sort of background, what do you think is, what are your thoughts around narrative versus reality in terms of where the transition is going into renewables and how feasible that actually is, and what are the second order consequences of the many things that are being pushed about? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, more generally about ESG, I feel like that is a bit of a bull market luxury. Um, like, I want my returns, but I also want to feel good about how they came about, right? Um, and I will be very curious to see if what we talked about earlier, and maybe the returns for the next ten years are not particularly strong does the appetite for ESG fail, fade a little bit as well? Um, that would be pretty on point for human nature, uh, but we will see. More generally about energy, uh, I think one of the difficult realities about our current world is how dependent we are on fossil fuels to create the modern abundance that we have. I mean, it is absolutely... Uh, it is untenable to imagine the current world without fossil fuels as it exists today. Um, the, the affluence that we that you know so many people experience, um, e even food is hugely influenced by fossil fuels. Like we are a hundred percent dependent on feeding seven and a half or whatever it is now billion people on with using fossil fuels, and that has to do with the energy required 
uh, as well as the, the ammonia that needs to be produced for the fertilizers. Natural gas is a huge component of that. It takes, we are, I'm very hopeful that we will be able to transition away from fossil fuels, uh, but there are no silver bullets for that. I think it's going to be a lot of little things from uh, hopefully nuclear power is, is one of the answers, increased renewables, better battery storage, uh, actually like reducing food waste would be huge for saving energy. Um, and it's going to be a lot of little things that hopefully add up, but it's probably going to take 30 to 50 years if we stay diligent and work on it. And anyone who wants to do it in the next, you know, five or 10 years, I think, unfortunately, what they're implicitly saying is that they are okay with starving and keeping poor the lower one to 2 billion people on this planet. And I, I find that to be, you know, quite objectionable. And I hope that it's just a lack of understanding of the realities of the physics of the world that we're in today. And it's not, you know, something more devious than that. I don't think it is, but but I mean, we just have to recognize the reality is that we are all like the modern world just runs on fossil fuels at the moment. And it's going to take time and ingenuity and human effort and persistence to transition off them. I think we can do it, but to do it too fast is going to create a lot of human misery if we try to go too fast. Everyone is concerned about climate change. But I think that when it comes to investing, when it's to differentiate your own concerns on to whether or not something is a good or a bad investment. Because I think that if you confound both, then you get into a little bit of a, an emotional conundrum, which might or might not be very good for the investment outcome itself. Uh, it's not, it hasn't been wasted on us. The fact that Warren Buffett has never been very big on energy and he has made an energy company, one of its, uh, his top holdings over the course of the last uh, 12 months. Yeah, so, I mean, more generally saying like, don't let your politics run your, your portfolio. Uh, I think that that is, is probably wise, but ideally your politics are run by the data of the world that you see around you and, you know, kind of what reality is between economics and human interaction and uh, policies that we think will allow us to coordinate our efforts in the best way that we can so that the you know, the maximization of human happiness and, and utility is created uh, with a minimum amount of externalities uh, for everyone else to deal with. So if that's your stance, then, you know, maybe that's okay to have a little bit of politics in your portfolio. But generally, I think that that is good advice is to not mix those two and not let that drive the bus for you. But that might be a little bit optimistic to think that real, you know, physics and economics are, and the reality of those things are driving everyone's, uh, everyone's politics. <laughs> That's interesting. Jake, we're coming to an end of our session and we always ask our guests two questions, but because this is your second time around, I will spare you from the, our signature question on an example of a, a bad outcome due to bad process and bad luck. And given that you are such an avid reader, uh, I would like to ask you if you could give us at least one book recommendation, but I don't know if you remember last time you gave us three. So that's a little <laughs> bit what you're competing against. Okay, yeah, I'll, I, will, uh, I will do better and I'll give you two this time. <laughs> uh, the first one is this book called Behave by Dr. Robert Sapolsky. And what it is is a, an examination of human behavior and it, he slices it up into different time periods. So he looks at 
you know, you know, in real time, what is happening in your brain, in your blood chemistry, in your, your physical body, in the environment around you, right as you're making a decision and, and take an action. And then he rewinds it. And like, what, what happened 10 seconds before that? And he looks at all the same components. And then let's go back a little further, like a week ago. And then we go back a further for a few years ago. And then your childhood. And then your, uh, like while you're in the womb, because what, what was happening to you then will actually later dictate, you know, things that like how you view the world. And then past that, like your genes before that, and then even deeper back into, you know, where, where did your ancestors evolve and what were the inputs that, that drove their evolution and how is that impacting your behavior today? So I'm an unapologetic Sapolsky fanboy. Uh, he has a, this amazing class that is online on YouTube that is, he teaches at Stanford and he has this series that is like his entire class for one semester uh, that he goes through a bunch of neuroscience and neurobiology. And, uh, and this book is, is a distillation a lot of a lot of his research. He, he's actually a, a primatologist by training. Like he spends his summers in Africa, like studying uh, apes and then comes back and teaches and writes and, and does all this stuff. So uh, he's, I love him. And this book is, is my favorite of his books. Uh, and it's a little bit long uh, because he is covering so much ground, but like the amount of research that has gone into it is just absolutely amazing. So if you're, if you're interested in why you do what you do, like this book is, is kind of uh, it's kind of a must read. Uh, the second one is a little bit more fun and a little, little shorter. And it's uh, Ed Thorpe's autobiography, a man for all markets. And what's just fun about that is that, you know, just to have such a steel trap mind applied to different problems in the world and how Thorpe solved them, I think is really helpful for us as we, we look for what our edge is. We look for, you know, how can we stand out and, and have a bit of an unfair advantage? Uh, you know, Thorpe was always looking for that in every domain that he was in. So, uh, you know, he's, I, he's also a hero of mine. So I, I kind of just picked two of my, uh, two of my favorite people and then pick their books for recommendations. Those are fantastic recommendations. Jake Taylor, thank you very much for coming back to the Value Perspective Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Juan. It was so much fun. Thank you.